What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is playwright Lily Jackson. Hello, Lily Jackson. Thank you so much for joining Hello. us. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm excited to have the conversation. Um, Lily, I want to start with a little bit about you and specifically where and how you grew up. What was your family like? Oh, yeah. I grew up actually out here in the Bay. I am, I have, I guess, like my dad's side from Oakland, my mama's side from Richmond. So I was sort of between both spaces. I got seven brothers and sisters. I'm the baby. And um, I was always a little, make, you know, playing with Barbies, making up whole narratives, just kind of in a fantasy land. And I think that concerned my parents because it's kind of expensive for a little Black girl to live in fantasy so much out here. And they just wanted to protect me and warn me. And so my mom kept me, like, really, really, really close to her. Like, she was a teacher, so if she worked at a school, she'll transfer me to that school, that after-school program. I was, like, super close to my parents. Um, But, yeah, I think that as far as my writing goes and my relationship to theater, like, I didn't go to plays as a kid. I never saw, like, you know, my relationship to theater had been liturgical for so long. I had only seen and witnessed live theater in church and I feel like there's no better play in the world than like just the whole performance of a church (laughs) like so I just was always like paying attention to things and that kind of setup and format as a kid and you know wanting to help tell stories and you know things like that but I never knew like I, I didn't have no language I didn't have no real access to theater outside of like the like you know, the church and what they would allow me to do for so long. So when did that, when did that change? When did, when, when did you have access to the theater? When, when did she call you for real, for real? When I went to a church retreat, I was probably 22, 22 years old, 21 years old or something like that. And I went on this church retreat and I did all the skits for it. Like, Every I wrote every single skit, directed it, produced it. Like I just it, it I didn't know I was producing. I didn't have the language then. I was just like, oh, I'm the drama te- you know, the drama club and sh- or something like that. And the speaker for that retreat came up to me. I had never met him, and he had saw one of my skits, and he was like, "When you are a player, like that's how he said it. Like when you are a playwright, when you're making plays, and like like he just said it like, and I was like, oh, I guess that." is that something people can do? Like, that's when it came into my consciousness. I was like, oh, I guess I can do this. Like, and I started to like look into film because most places don't have film, but I ended up going to a community college that didn't have a film program. They only had theater. And I would audition for a play because this was right that summer, like the fall after that spring, like, I went. I auditioned for a play because this teacher said you get extra credit if you audition. And I auditioned for Doubt. And for Miss Muller, and I got the role, and that was the first time I was in like a you know like a school community production of theater, and I was I was like okay acting's okay, like but I was like mm, directing's the real power, and then I was directing this white boy, <laughs> and I couldn't get him to do what I needed him to do, so I was like mm, maybe playwriting's the real, <laughs> you know it was just 
trying to, but yeah, I, I kind of like have done all over, but like playwriting is, has been, I'm a playwright. Like I, I think that, that there's been a lot that I see now. I'm like, oh, like I always been a playwright when I was like playing with my Barbies, you know, we'll talk about Cone, but the first scene is two little girls playing with their Barbies, creating this whole narrative, this whole world that they've seen before. And um, yeah, I think that, yeah, everything is theater. It's always been there. But when it came into actualization, I was like 22 and I had already been doing it, but I didn't know I was doing it. And I actually know this next story um, because I asked you it during the talk back after Comb. Um, talk about your journey into actual playwriting, your conversation with your, with your professor. Oh, it, it's a lot. I mean, first of all, if we can even just take a little, like the university, like the university changed my, my writing style, my writing voice. I feel like that institution did everything it could in its power to like break me and make me into something I wasn't. It was very, very challenging. You know, I got my master's degree in playwriting. And so I like went, you know, as far as I could go, um, just to dedicate to the to the to the art. But it was interesting. And like I always say, like the higher I got in education, the dumber the people got. Like it was just so <laughs> much toxicity and like a lack of imagination. And I um I didn't, yeah, I had one of my professors, he just did not really mess with me at all. Like he, everything I wrote, I feel like he would disagree. My classmates would be like, you are wrong. Like this is like, (laughs) like it would be whole debates off my work or my entries for the week or whatever. And this professor, it was hard for him to see the vision. And then he ended up coming to see, I didn't touch it. I never, I never accepted his edits or his suggestions. I just didn't mess with the piece. And at the end of the semester, I threw a showcase with that piece and another piece I had been writing. Um, and he came to see it and was like crying. <laughs> he was like in tears. He was like, oh my goodness. I, I didn't, I didn't see it, but I see it now. Like it's so powerful. And I don't know. I feel like that was like a moment for me to realize that like I thought I needed, I used the institution to my advantages in my career, I guess, but I didn't need them to be a better writer. You know what I'm saying? I didn't need them to be a better creative. Like they gave me access to some resources, but they didn't make me a better, they tried to make me a worse one. So yeah, like with the school, with universities, professors, institutions, you really got to be mindful of who who you allowing to influence and speak into your work. Like it's life. So yeah, even the way that, that these institutions try to shape black artists. I mean, I remember some of my more radical politics in my college years coming out in my analysis around August Wilson pieces, particularly seven Mm -hmm. guitars and being in a Mm -hmm. fight with actually a man I respected very much, but he was an old white man. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's arguing with me about what August Wilson was trying to say about black life in America. And um, I, re- I just remember that moment and, and realizing that this place that actually had been a safe haven for me as a black person um, since I was eight years old, the theater was still in this country, had the ability to still be in this country, uh, a functioning agent of white supremacy. Hmm. Hmm. Which is exactly the opposite of what August Wilson wanted. Like <laughs> he was like, he was like, uh, no, like this is for black people. I'm writing for black people. Like, don't ever get it twisted. My theater is like, 
I mean, if it doesn't show in his work, just the the work alone, like if you knew nothing about his, his him as a playwright or person, his politics, like you can just look at his work and you can see so clearly what he thought about white people. Right. Like, right. you know, like, exactly. Right. Right. He's basically always like, you know, nothing <laughs> like basically right. like, you know, nothing. That is the like a consensus. Like it's just every single no, y'all don't know nothing. Like y'all don't understand things. You don't read correctly. Like thinking about um, the white men in Ma Rainey, you know, she was way smarter than them. And they had the nerve to talk about how, you know, she's just as a problem and she's playing them the whole time like you know it's just so powerful in how he saw our agency in being smarter right Mm-hmm. Comb your hair or you'll look like a slave. I had the pleasure of directing a reading of this brilliant piece uh, for Bamfest. This is your first play or was your first play? Yeah, this is my first one act play and Which, the first play I've ever written. Um, like It's mind blowing. It is mind blowing <laughs> that this is your first play. Um, that this is the so yes, you were definitely meant to be a playwright. T- tell tell the people a little bit about comb your hair or you look like a slave and what inspired you to write it. Yeah, I wrote "Comb Your Hair, You Look Like a Slave" after I um, was I was in college. I was like, I'm a playwright, but I had never written a play. I had written skits or scenes. Um, I had never written anything more than seven pages, and so I I uh, told one of my professors, I was like, "Yo, I want to be a playwright," and he was like, "Well, if you want to be a playwright, like send me something." And I was like, "What do you mean? Like one of my skits?" He was like, "Send me your your a one act or a full length." And like, I I was like, "That's what is okay." I was like, "Okay, okay." So I like go you know Google it. Okay, so like I um and this was an undergrad, like after I had already went to community college, like I didn't really know the language because again, my only relationship to theater had been in the church, which I was just doing it. I didn't know I was doing it. So um, I, I, my friend was like, hey, you know, you want to go see the vagina monologues? Like, and I was like, oh, yeah, I heard, you know, I heard about it. I ain't never seen it. Like, let's go. And it was the worst play production I had ever seen. I was like, I can do better than that. Like, I can definitely do better than that. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of poetry. I'm a poet. And so I was like, I'm going to just write something about like the black woman version of vagina monologues like it's not gonna be about pubic hairs it's gonna be about our hair and like how that actually like how like yeah I was like just I just didn't like how it was written I feel like it didn't include like the diversity of womanhood at all and I was like I'm gonna write something that's specific but also very like universal so I just thought hair and I just asked different black women at my school in my life I was like tell me your hair story and I wrote it down I'm a huge researcher I'm really a fan of like critical fabulation and so I was like oh like tell me about your hair story and one most of the stories overlapped right like most of the black people who I interviewed like some of them was shaved it had shaved heads some of them had locks some of them had natural hair weaves buzz downs braids like it was all kind of different hair stuff some of them had all those things like so I was just asking like tell me about your hair story what's your hair journey and they would tell me, you know, it would always be, oh, I play with the white dolls. I had a yellow, t- you know, I used to put the towel over my head so my hair can be longer or, you know, and then it just got into more body politics. Like it started with the hair, but it was like, oh, and then one time somebody, you know, said I look ugly or I thought I was cute. And, you know, everybody was talking to call me 
so-and-so monkey or whatever like these uh what was one one woman told me she said everyone used to call me african booty scratcher like these are just like from the it starts with the hair and then it just trickles down and it's like interesting because the hair is the first thing on your head it's your crown and i was just like whoa and so i like would take notes and then at the end of each interview i just sit with that piece and try to see it like what does this look like on stage and put that those different narratives and parts of their narratives in scenarios like okay how would it be you know to have to audition for a white girl who gets to flirt with the cops and get off scotch-free um and it's talking about some flip your hair to flirt like how do you do that when you got an afro or you don't have no hair like you know i don't like i just i just was like putting everything in like perspective and that's how come your hair was written. Like I added me in it. Like there's pieces that I'm like, this was just me. I didn't, I interviewed myself for this. Like emotional poet was just me. Um, so yeah, I think it just all really came together at the end. I had a lot of help producing it. I was like writing it and producing it. <laughs> like It was winning awards. It was, it was, it was like, it just seemed like such a neat, but that was a long time ago. I feel like comb your hair now is like a little outdated in the sense of like this narrative of hair has been talked about a lot in the last like five to seven years. And um, there's movies and shows and just so much like Instagram, like so much publicity. And when I wrote it, it didn't feel like that. And that was just a short time ago. So I'm kind of proud in that sense of feeling a little outdated in the sense of like, oh, like no one's going to disagree with this. But when I wrote it, not even that long ago, it was like, huh, i never seen anything like this. Like, you know, <laughs> so yeah, now it gets compared to a lot of stuff. And I'm like, oh, I wrote it before that, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the monologue where the black actress is auditioning for the white role um, mm-hmm. and, and directed to flirt with the cop. Um, why mm-hmm. don't you read us a little bit from, from that monologue? Yeah, of course. All right, back. Is there a problem, officer? She tries to flip her hair. No, sir, I have no idea what you're pulling me over for, but I'm sure it's nothing we can't take care of between the two of us, she attempts to be sexy. Drugs? Oh, I dabble. With me? She's looking at the script. No, I I can do it, I I just need, what was that? Oh, I mean, yeah, I've been pulled over before, but it wasn't nothing like, I can do it. (laughs) From the top, okay. She gets into character. Is there a problem, officer? She attempts to flip her hair. No, sir. I have no idea what you're pulling me over, but I'm sure it's nothing we can't take care of between the two of us. Drugs. (laughs) I, I dabble. Oh, you mean with me? I don't think so, she winks. Step out of the car? Uh, Okay, (laughs) she steps out of the car. Oh, you haven't even brought me dinner yet, she winks again. Ouch, ouch, wait, she jerks her body around. What did I do wrong? What did, sir, 
ouch, you're really hurting me. She puts her hands behind her back. But what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Sir, I just want to know. I just want to know what I did. Her body slams to the ground. I can't feel my arm. I can't feel my arm. What did I do wrong? What did I do to deserve this? Can you just tell me what I did to deserve this? Flip's hair. Flip's hair. Flip's hair. Lights fade out. Thank you for for that. That was one of my my favorite pieces uh, in 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 the piece. That and the piece about writing the Father's Day card. Like mm-hmm. the, we both had a lot yeah. of emotional responses. Every time the actress did that, right in tears. Um, one of the things that I've really been thinking about as a black theater maker and storyteller, right, is that so much of the work that we do is about talking about our trauma, regurgitating our trauma, processing our trauma, writing about our trauma, directing our trauma, acting our trauma. That stuff doesn't just stay in the theater when we walk outside, right? Or stay in the laptop when we shut it. Like that compounds the trauma that we walk with every day, just being black Mm -hmm. in this country. How do you as a black storyteller hold that trauma? I go to therapy. (laughs) I sometimes don't hold it to be honest cat i think that i it's it's like it's impossible to write about trauma if you don't even know it's trauma like like it's not impossible like people do it but like because it's normalized but i think that to have the perspective of like oh this this is this was not okay and this was not my fault like that allows for us to see the narrative or this wasn't okay and it was my fault like i'm toxic i caused trauma to other people like you know or whatever those senses may be like however you come to that conclusion but i think that for me like if i would have thought like oh yeah like it's just hair like you know i'm like whatever, I don't care, like, then this piece would have been very different, like, you know, I wouldn't have wrote it, but I recognize just by talking to people and engaging people in their narratives and, like, allowing for myself to relate to those narratives, too, it allowed for me to see that, like, yeah, this is traumatic and it's not okay, it's not okay, and a lot of times when people see comb your hair, they say, I didn't know, like, like people, they say, I didn't know that this was something more people went through. So that's the first thing is they think it's an isolated incident, which means that, you know, they think that that is their fault. That trauma is theirs. You know, there's a such thing as shared trauma. And I think a lot of Black women experience shared trauma. And when you put it all on the stage, there's no hiding. There's no hiding. It's it's just there. That's the story. That's the narrative. You have to engage with that narrative. You can dislike it. You can like it. You can cry, relate, laugh, whatever. But it's that's you just have to engage with that. And I think a lot of times it's like, oh, I've like people come to me and apologize. They say, I'm sorry. I've done some of those things. I've talked like that to my daughter. I, I I didn't know, you know, and so like I didn't know I was causing trauma. I didn't know I was causing pain because it's normalized. And so I think that for me, you know, when it comes to like writing about trauma, like there's there has to be a strong sense of truth telling. And I think that in order for me to tell the truth, I have to come face to face with all my anxieties, all my traumas, all my fears, and be not be, you know, afraid of them. I have to be okay with writing about it. Like I heard this girl say, like, show your scars, not your wounds. Like I'm still going through something and every time I write it, I'm crying. I know that probably mean that this needs to take a little time. If somebody look at my work and say, Oh, what if you consider writing it like this? Or I didn't understand this character and I'm getting all defensive. And I'm that might mean I'm still 
You know what I'm saying? Like I need to take a step back, go on and, you know, do some, go lift weights, whatever I do to like regulate, go to therapy, talk about that. But if, you know, if it's a play and you're saying, hey, community, I want to engage you in this narrative. Like you have to be okay with the fact that somebody might not like it. Somebody might not agree with it, you know, but if you confront your traumas beforehand, it's not so, don't feel like nobody's attacked. It's just, the, you know, okay, cool. You know, well, I live with myself. I did this, you know, or this is, that's how I feel. That's how I feel you're treating me. And I don't care if you just, you know, people, some people, a lot of black women actually, like they hate combing your hair just because of the name. They mm. hate it. They hate it. They're like, no, no. I had a black woman tell me my theater will never produce this play. Um, she hated the name. She didn't even read it. And so like, I, I have to be okay with that. You know, I'm like, well, yeah, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you know, move on. But if I was like still dealing with the traumas, like every day, that probably would have made me mad. Probably, you know, she don't get it. She don't. I got to deal with it. I got to deal with the very things that happened to me to the point where I'm not so sensitive about it. Yeah, does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. The Comb Your Hair doesn't just hold our trauma to me. It's also a resistance piece. Talk about exactly. Black theater as an instrument in the path to Black liberation. Yes. Yes. It. I love theater. I love theater more than any other hobby I have. Um, theater offers an opportunity for a lived experience. Like some researchers would even say that if it wasn't for theater, Black people, Black enslaved people never would have experienced what freedom felt like. Because it was this, they would argue that it was the putting on whiteness, literally like when white women would give their, you know, enslaved uh, mistresses their old clothes, their old dresses, and these women would go on the street on Sundays and put on their clothes, and people would mistake them to be white people from the back, and they would write articles about how that should be illegal. White black women should not be wearing white women's clothes because it's confusing for us. And um, black people would move off the road to get out the way for a white person. This was all in the 1800s. Like this was insane. Like they felt that freedom. They would even say like the cakewalk, like all these things that are like super unfortunate gave black people like, wait a second. Like when I was doing that, it actually, when I was putting that on that whiteness, it actually felt good. I, wait a second now. And there start to become some awareness. Um, now there's some, you know, I can say the why it's good in, but at the end of the day, like putting on liberation, offers access to liberation <laughs> so honestly to keep black people from theater to not tell our stories or to have a black play at the white theater company is so violent august wilson you mentioned you know i studied august wilson i love august wilson like august wilson was literally like hey look what uh, no we he he spent a great portion of his life his talking about how theater needs to be put back in the hands of Black people, Black actors, Black producers in Black neighborhoods. And it's it's for a reason. It's to see ourselves, to see our narratives laid out there and to feel, feel, feel the liberation in our bodies. Um, everybody, the audience, the cast, and everybody engaged in that experience to feel that. And that's what's important. And that's, yeah, like, 
like please like I'm like please don't take theater away like I love theater black theater is vital and so yeah even like you know like when your uncle be at at the house on Thanksgiving telling us about how he dunked on Michael Jordan and he's showing you it you know like all that's theater like we are like I said the black church is theater it's theater everything is theater there's a script there's lines there's improv like everything is theater you know and so it's like you can't really take away theater from black people but like i think that we need it on all stages on all platforms like every single dollar amount street theater home theater church theater as well as actually like stage theater like we need all of it it's it's everywhere All right, family, you have been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. This week's resistance and residence artist is playwright Lily Jackson. Lily, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me, Kat. I appreciate what you're doing here. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law Disorders produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>